HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network, live at Industry City. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. We are broadcasting from inside Brooklyn Cora at Industry City. Today, we have a very illustrious panel and group of people. We're talking with Brian Poland. Poland? Poland? Poland works. Poland. Brandon Dawn, Greg Moore, and Terry Moore. Um, Brian and Brandon are from Brooklyn Cora. They're makers of American Craft Sake, um, and they are New York's first sake brewery. This is true. Correct. Um, Greg and Terry Moore. Greg, Greg is the dad. Terry is the son. Um, are from Moore Brothers Wine Company. Um, it's a wine store in Brooklyn, uh, in Brooklyn, in Industry City. They curate artisanal natural wines direct from the vineyards. Both of you guys, like I said, make your homes here in Industry City, and we'll talk about that a little. All right, so let's start with a little storytelling, all right? Um, I want to know how you guys got together and how everything got going, all of you. But let's start with Brian and Brandon. You guys 
met in Japan, came back, hooked up, and got some cockamamie idea to start a <laughs> sake brewery That's in Brooklyn. True. Yeah, so, so we, tell me how that evolved. Um, we have a friend in common who got married in Japan, so it was our first trip to Japan. Um, and after the wedding, we traveled around Japan and we wandered into a, a very traditional sake brewery, um, which is a pretty impressive experience to have for the first time. Um, you, you, we saw like how they're brewing sake, we got the smells of the sake, we tasted the sake at, at the brewery, which was very different than, than the previous sake experiences we had in the United States, and I think most Anybody but how, how into sake were you previous to this? Um, I mean, like, I think we were pretty average to, to okay. you know, most So it wasn't this passion thing yeah, or obsession? No, it was, it, like, that was sort of a moment of crystallization for the passion there, just coming in and seeing that. Yeah. No. But, no. <laughs> Handing it off to you, so, Brian. So like, how dare you? Bring the story, bring story home. You? Brian, you have to stay awake for this so, interview. Uh, but that's hilarious. tell me, tell me... Take me to the next level where, so, hey, we, you, maybe we should start our no, own. No, I mean, first of all, you meet someone that you enjoy being around and you find something that is surprisingly like broad in flavor and quality, affordability and craftsmanship. And you're just like, why the hell aren't people making this in the U.S.? And can we do this? And Brandon had been brewing for years and is like really talented. And I was in the market for a hobby. And essentially, we went back to our respective homes, Brandon in Portland, me in Brooklyn, and we started making sake. And it was like, wow, this is better than you would expect it to be, given all the um, assumptions you make about craft products that come out of Japan um, and and like I mean fast forward a lot of time and energy um, a lot of back and forth and failed experiments and it's like I think and Brandon thinks what, that, what uh, year was that this was 2013 when we met in Japan and we formally started a company in in New York State in in January of 2016 and we we literally jumped off the cliff in September of 2016. So right. our, our timeline is pretty abridged. I mean, we, we collected investors and made a decision to do this and took the risk. And from 2016 through pretty much Jan December of 2017, we were in a preparation phase, which we could talk more about, um, but started our first commercial production in December of 2017. So that is about almost a year, two years ago. Yeah, a little, yeah, yeah, a year and a half ago. But we'll talk about that a little more. I want to talk to uh, Greg and Terry. Greg, you were in the restaurant business. You were in Philly. You worked at a storied restaurant. Storied. Lebec Finn, <laughs> Georges Perrier, who's crazy. Heard, I, he I, epitomized I, the crazy French chef. Um, I still have the meat cleavers flying in my head in my nightmares. <laughs> Thank God it's not in the back of your back. Um, Tell me, tell me the transition from the restaurant biz to getting into the wine retail business. How'd that come about? Oh uh, well, I had a, um, uh, I have a great friend, and um, we, we we shared the interest in wine. I was the sommelier in this restaurant, and he sold me wine. Um, he had a brother who was he has a brother who at the time was uh, doing a stage at a restaurant in Paris or in, in Versailles, so. There, Tell there everyone was, what a stage is. It's like an internship, right? Kind of an internship, yeah. yeah. And, and, it, and it turns out that the smartest guy in that restaurant was the sommelier. 
and uh, uh, his name is Pierre Payardon. He was the first Meilleur Jeune Sommelier de France. Really smart guy. And today he's a superstar in Bordeaux, and we still work with him. Uh, but um, uh, it happens that uh, uh, we encountered uh, producers directly. I had never had the experience of, uh, of um, direct uh, Everything was through salespeople yeah, and reps and yeah, all Yeah, salespeople telling you, oh, Greg, that's a nice tie, you know. Totally different interaction, uh, right? Complete, completely, and, and, and the experience of wine culture was different. I, wine culture is, is in many respects barren in that, uh, in that world. But in the real world of producers, it was very impressive to me. So we began uh, uh, bringing, uh, well, my friend via his employer, who was the importer, bringing tiny quantities of wine that, um, that uh, made a lot of sense for me and empowered me to tell stories about the producers when I was serving the wines in the restaurant. And eventually, um, uh, my customers, when they went to the Four Seasons, would open up the wine list and say, well, where, where's the Debolt Valois? How come Greg can get that and you can't get that here at the Four Seasons? And uh, so my, uh, my friend's business grew uh, in, in, in further distribution, but it was still pretty insufficient for um, establishing strong uh, ongoing relationships. And we got the idea together that that it would be a richer um, environment for their wines, these small producers, if we presented them to a, a wider world than the people who were paying uh, a which fantastic sums for the back farm, which would in, be in retail. a store environment. Would be, would be retail. So you open and the first So it was fits and starts, you know. Uh, uh, the, the problem was that I, I had become more or less Mr. Wine of Philadelphia. Um, I was already teaching classes in the University of Pennsylvania's continuing education division. Um, of wine appreciation, that sort of thing. But um, so we knew, I knew that, uh, the, that I had to be close to Center City, Philadelphia uh, to hit the ground running. Right. And so um, uh, New Jersey was the place. The problem of New Jersey is hugely expensive uh, uh, liquor licenses. Right. And I was a glorified waiter with uh, <laughs> two kids in private school. And so anyway, serendipity and, and, and wonderful circumstances uh, found, us, uh, found me a place. Uh, a guy who had a liquor license in pocket, a little bit of complication, but he was willing to, to do, do everything, didn't want to be a partner. He, and, he saw what you saw. He, no, he was just, a, and he was also a nice guy. He was a nice guy who died much too young in his 40s, but, uh, but Ooh, he was a good guy. So the first store was where? Pensacon, right across over the, the bridge. Over the bridge right in New by Jersey. The strip clubs. Right on, the, <laughs> right on the Cooper River, in fact. Beautiful yeah. location. And that was what year? 1996. 1996. Yeah, we, and we moved in two years uh, around the corner to a bigger spot in the same place. But in 1999, we had done quite so well. I think that it was, it's, a, it's an environment served by uh, Pennsylvania state stores. Right. And it really Which is a whole different story Another we don't story. want to talk about. But we then opened uh, a second store in 1999, so only three years later in um, Wilmington, Delaware, in a very nice section of Wilmington, Delaware. And that was, uh, was a hugely successful. We opened in October, and, and it was self-financing by uh, uh, New Year's Eve. New Year's. And was, then you came to New York? Oh, wow. <laughs> what a story. What? what a story. Hubris. What happened? It was hubris. We, well, first, you know, the first um, uh, probing that I, uh, that I made into New York was um, 
at the time, it was in 2000, so really shortly. I'm talking about, I was trying to, moving fast, it was what I had touched worked so well that I thought everything was gonna work out. And I came and I, and I actually got into an agreement of sale almost almost uh, signed to buy the, uh, the uh, Chelsea Wine Vault ah. uh, in the Chelsea market, which, market was not, yeah. which was not doing really well. And, huge um, space, right? Pretty big. Huge space. Um, it had its problems because it came with the uh, private storage thing and uh, right. managing that and all that. So fits and starts, and I realized I was too young. I got cold feet. I was too inexperienced. I got cold feet, backed away. I thought I was so smart because... Unfortunately, shortly after was 9-11, and they really tanked at the Chelsea market for, yeah. for a while. That was so tough I, for everyone. Oh, God. So I, I, but I continued to want to do it and um, eventually found the space on, um, on uh, 20th Street across. What from, year was that? That was, I f- we found the space in 2004, 2000, no, in, in 2003. Um, didn't uh, uh, enter into a lease until, uh, or agree on a lease until 2004, and the construction was just when huge did you open? delayed. We opened in 2006, in May oh, of 2006. Jesus. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute, but really I want to ask you guys, while we're here in Industry City, why did you decide on opening in Industry City? Because you couldn't open Brooklyn so, Cure, Cure so, in Queens. So, so I mean, actually, so so finding a place. All the other boroughs were locked out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so finding a place to manufacture alcohol is relatively challenging in the city. To manufacture anything in New York City is difficult. I mean, like physically the, or regulation. Physically, the regulatory environment, the cost of people that are necessary to do the jobs that are essential. I mean, a whole bunch of layers of the process are challenging, um, and so we spent a lot of time thinking about places that would allow us to kind of do construction and start production. So no DOB, no no challenging changes of occupancy, these things that are necessary and a lot of people go through. Um, And Industry City represented this group of people that were trying to bring together like talented makers and craftsmen and commercial entities and retailers um, to build a community. How uh, long were you looking before I, you came so across industry? Before we started the company in earnest, actually probably like June, um, May of 2016. So it took us through. So we started looking. Um, we courted Industry City for quite some time. Um, and in, we signed a lease with them in March of 2017, started construction in June of 2017, commercial production in December. Um, but the real decision was like the ease of acceptance, the broader goals here, the collection of cool people doing interesting things, plus the potential of all the commercial tenants that were going to experience sake through us for the first time. I mean, just like the presence of Moore Brothers and like their like early success here. I mean, it's just been... It's, it's the right community for us. Given it's so difficult to manufacture things here, we needed advocacy of people that could invest in us as well as a small business. Nice. Um, Terry, when did you, we got up to the New York store, eventually you closed the New York store. You came to Industry City when and why? Why we opened, did you wind up here? We opened here February 2017. Okay. So we closed the store on 20th Street in June of 2016. Okay. So we were closed for eight months. Um, well, 
Were you on the hunt for a location? You no, wanted we, to get back we'd had it. We'd had it um, picked out and and um, and we were ready to go. But you know, construction takes a little bit of time, right. and also dealing with the New York SLA. Right. You know. <laughs> Tell me about. It's a unique environment. I mean, you have multiple buildings. You're pretty much on the water. You have incredible retail. You have some committed. Tell me about the people that are coming in and out of the buildings and the neighborhoods. So what I mean, interested us was a lot of the things that Brian talked about, um, was it's you know, community of, of creative people of all types. And I think it's certainly a group of people who are really interested in the message that we have and, and the message that Brooklyn Cura has um, about, you know, certainly artisanal craft, but also, you know, about real human stories. Um, and so you know, we see- They're people, more discerning that way. Well, I think, I think they're, they're more curious right. in that way. Um, and, and that's really the kind of people that, um, you know, we, we love to deal with. Um, and and it's it's a it's a swath, you know. It's it's a really um, it's a diverse community. Now, our your clientele different retail. You know, you manufacture a product, plus you sell it on tap and in the bottle. Um, are most of the people coming from the buildings, or people are coming across it's, from Sunset Park? It's a it's a mix. I mean, I think um, uh, Industry City is is like a new thing, and it's growing. So it's like it's approaching this critical mass. And the time that we started to build out here. We've seen uh, like the influx of people. It started off as a lot of people in the building. It's becoming more of a destination. Um, yeah, so. I think once you come here, you realize it's yeah. a destination. I think and, people... and, it's, and then, you know, Industry City is really like, the theme, the, the kind of vibe that it seems like they're putting out is, is their maker retailer, right? So, so, so you can walk down, you can see the chocolate being made, and you can go in and buy the chocolate. Right, you know, lilac. Yeah, in our place, you can see the tanks, you can see us stirring and making sake in the back, you can come in and drink sake. So I think that that is like, I mean, it's like maybe a hipster comment, but it's like, it's very Brooklyn. It's, it's like, it's, 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 it's attracting people who are interested in, in the story behind right. the thing that you're making. That people want to spend their time with an experience and the story yeah, backing exactly. it up. Um, Greg. You have a very unique wine shop and philosophy. Um, I mean, I've been around enough wine stores and wine people. Explain to people what you do, what you sell, why that wine is in your store. Well, um, um, first, uh, it could be really generally said that virtually every wine that, um, that um, we sell comes from a, um, a small family winery. And I, I really mean it's mom, dad, school-aged kids fold Farm. the boxes like they're working yeah. at dad's pizza shop. Pop, pop, still in the vines. They're, they're, they're really, maybe a horse and maybe a dog that doesn't bark at me because I've been there so many times. So their personal relationships, in addition to being small, uh, small wineries. I, I can tell you about one uh, who put up my daughter for a year when she was, when she was teaching in Würzburg. And, and uh, it, 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 it's, it's really in many cases, familial relationships. And they all have a common uh, characteristic, and I, I, I call it um, stewardship. It's, it's that Stewardship they, of what, the stu land? Stewardship of the of land, it. stewardship of their traditions, stewardship of cultural values that result in high quality uh, produce, uh, that uh, great farming, um, 
uh, and uh, and an, you know an inner need to 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 do the best. And some of them are in uh, places where they don't even get the support of the locals around them who would rather who would rather go to the cooperative with a, right. a five-gallon uh, demijohnny and pay 32 cents a liter to have it filled than to pay the guy who's the real caretaker of their own traditions three euros a bottle for the real <laughs> high-quality authenticity. And so w the work that we do, I think sometimes, is, is it's a participation in their stewardship by finding them the kind of audience that might appreciate exactly what they are trying to do and what they have done. And in some cases, it's, uh, you know, it helps make their work sustainable. We have a guy in uh, Côte de Gascogne. We, we buy half of his pr entire production. Wow. Well, to put it in context, most wine stores buy through salespeople, importers, distributors, or whatever. Yeah, but most of what, what you're saying is your relationship, and it's, it's a curated lineup of wines. I mean, these here's, are- here's, here's the deal, and, it's, and it's, it's the way I, it's, it is the way I see it. Most retailers want to do as little work as possible. The object is- it's <laughs> Most a, people. It's a self-service business where people walk in, they find their bottle of Jordan Cabernet, they find their bottle of Veuve Clicquot, they walk in, they recognize the, the whatever, George DeBuff in November, and they walk out and they don't need to have a social encounter. Uh, but that, what you're doing is you're selling all the same things. What are you adding to, why, why get up right. in the morning? And if you, if, and, and you know what? The clientele is, is not loyal. You're not, you're not developing a community of, rela of relationships with your clientele. But if you start, rather than that drift, is you start with the idea that everything you offer belongs there because it's unique. It has special nuance. It might require you to work. <laughs> to, to sell it, God right. forbid. You, so we pour wine, four wines open at, at the tasting table every day. Um, you, you could walk in uh, uh, three times in a month and not see the same wine uh, on the tasting table. That's and, how you and, find, explore, and pick your wines that you're going to drink in the no, future. Finding and ex finding and picking the wines that we're going to drink—it's no secret. Who's well, no, the the customer, the customer will absolutely, come in. Abs absolutely. You know, they'll taste Vermentino for the first time. Yeah, or or, the, or, or they, you know, they they may find their preconceptions uh, of uh, of other things uh, 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 changed. Uh, you know, I, I'll pour a Macanay Burgundy, a right. little thing, and they'll say, and, and and you know, and they say, well, what kind of wine is it? Well, it's Chardonnay. Oh, I don't usually like Chardonnay. This doesn't taste like Chardonnay. Right. And, and, and then they can receive the wisdom of the idea that Chardonnay is only the ingredient. Right. You know, the wine is about a lot of different things. So you, you can't be all things to all people. So you focus on certain regions, right? Well, we, we, because of the your nature makers of, and where you spend time. We work in or, France, Italy, Germany. We actually have one guy in Argentina. Okay. Uh, who happens, though, to be a Bordelais, so he's, 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 he's from Bordeaux originally, from a Bordeaux family. He was one of the pioneers in the purchase of old vines. What about in the United States? In the United States, yeah, we're not, we're not snobs. We have, uh, but we, uh, we have uh, wonderful estate bottlers in uh, Santa Inez Valley, in, um, in Ballard Canyon, uh, uh, in uh, 
we have a, a wonderful producer. Brian, what do you point to? No, they bill. carry us as well. Which is oh, they do? Well, that was Just to make it easier you know, in Brooklyn. As well. and, and, if they didn't, I was going to make that match by the end of the show or whatever. Huge advocates. All right, so. Since we're here. Brian and Brandon, I wouldn't let you go, but you have to keep it not that nerdy and you got to keep it in a small window. You have to try, which is for Brandon. That's going to be tough. You have to tell people how sake is made. It's, it's, it's simple and it's not simple. It's simple because it's a handful of ingredients. It's not simple, but give me the quick primer on, we're all sitting around drinking sake. So what are we drinking? How do we get here? I, I can tell you like a simple version. I can also tell you how it's a little bit different than wine. There's a, there's a lot of crossover between sake and That's wine. That's fine. Just don't piss Greg off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's essentially four ingredients in the style of sake that we make. There's, there's Brooklyn water, which we could talk about in nerdy detail, which is, which is fantastic. Um, there's steamed rice. There's something called koji, which I'll talk more about. And then there's the yeast. Um, and then the big difference between wine and sake, as far as the fermentation process, is, is all the sugar that's going to be converted to, to ethanol um, is already within the grape. Um, in sake, we need a second organism other than, than yeast. We need an organism, a mold called koji or aspergillus oryzae, um, that we take a portion of the rice off and we grow this mold on it. Um, uh, for about two days in a really hot and humid room. So you make your own koji? Yes, we make our from, own koji. Okay. We've got a koji room. Um, <laughs> and what that does is it provides the enzymes that will convert the starch of the rice to sugar. So that's how we get our sugar. And then we put the koji and the yeast in the same tank. Um, and so we are converting the starch to sugar and and the yeast is, is eating that sugar and making the alcohol, alcohol. at the same time. Um, so that's like, in, in that respect, sake is a, like a very unusual fermented beverage in the world. So, whoops, sorry, was that there half your question? Well, no, you were gonna relate it to wine. Yeah, so you know, just, just that. that, well, that what are the similarities? So I guess so the similarities are, um, it's, it's a few simple ingredients um, were fermented um, and that, and like, there's very few sake breweries outside of Japan, um, so so it's difficult to get the kind of equipment and and things here in the United States um, without paying a lot of money to import them from Japan. So we have a lot of uh, wine equipment. You know, like we have like like if you walked into a winery anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world, and, and, or you walked into our sake brewery, you would see a lot of the same. Uh, yeah, that really struck me. That's yeah. right. That's Does that compromise the process at all? No, or I mean, not, I, not there's, there's, a, there's a lot of just general, you know, like some of the equipment just looks the same. The, some of the processes just really parallels each other. You know, you and I talked about this earlier. You can't call sparkling wine champagne mm -hmm. if it's made outside of champagne. Yes. With sake, is there a similar thing to that? Yeah, there is like a regional rule. So sake in Japan is known as Nihonshu. Um, and, and outside of, of Japan, it's, we call it sake. So, so Brian and I, we decided early on um, that there are, there are essentially no rules outside of China, certainly in the United States, for like there's loose rules for what sake is. But we've, 
we've made um, the decision to to sort of follow the Japanese rules. We are we are number one. We're we're not Japanese. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, if your podcast listeners didn't know, but. Uh, um, uh, and, and we made the decision to sort of follow the rules, the conventions in Japan. We're, we're using American ingredients, we're using Brooklyn water, um, we're American craft sake, um, but we're sort of like, we're, we're trying to introduce sake to people in the United States, so we right. want to like not give them something that's not traditional. So Brooklyn has pretty good water, so you could push the water aside. Rice is such a major part. You know, in Japan, all the farms and the type mm -hmm. of rice is. Where do you source rice from here? So mostly California. There's a, just a couple of regions where there's like river valleys with a bunch of deltas that, that are conducive for rice. So we basically get our rice from either California or Arkansas. Is it a special kind of rice? There or are. It's rice and you just do yeah. the processing you have. So to... rice specifically for sake um, is called sake mai. Um, <laughs> and, and so... Sake mai has kind of defined um, definitions in, uh, in Japan. Um, we use a rice called Yamanashiki, which is a sake mai. We also use what I think is becoming sort of the American sake mai, which is Calrose rice. Okay. I don't think anybody will remember <laughs> that, but that's okay. I, I think some, just a note, like sake brewer's rice is distinctive because the starch is centralized. And that's why, like, in sake grades, milling matters. So the more you mill, the more fats and proteins you're kind right. of stripping away, and the more pure starch fermentation you get. That doesn't necessarily make a better sake. It definitely makes a more expensive sake to make. And as a result, you see pricing differences for a daiginjo, which is more milled, than a junmai sake, which is less milled. Um, but ultimately, it's the taste and preferences of the brewer and the people that you're making sake for. So I, I think if you were going to take what sakemai is as a learning, it's just typical sakemai has a centralized starch, which makes milling more relevant to kind of having a pure starch fermentation. Yeah, I mean, there, we could do a whole show on just the rice yeah. and the polishing and, you know, all of that. We had um, maybe 25 of top sake professionals in the brewery two weeks ago that spent three days continuously for about sake regionality and this time they spent on rice was just it, it was like it was real um so you're absolutely right yeah um terry i wanted to ask you in the store you know we talked about five different regions do you still continue to travel the world and try to find new producers Yes, and and mostly yes, but also mostly no. Um, we, you know, okay, our relationships. Well, there are two reasons. Our relationships are, in many cases, you know, decades long. Um, right. You know, we buy wine from the grandson of the guy that we started with, and that kind of stuff. So it's reinforcing those relationships are why we travel, um, in one sense. However, in another, there are always interesting opportunities. Um, and, for example, I was in Burgundy in January and met three new extraordinary, you know, farms that we are now um, working with. So, so they had no representation or distribution? No, no. I mean, these are tiny, tiny little right. family farms and they sell, you know, locally, but they may not have um, any kind of presence here in the U.S. 
When you walk into the store, how many different, I hate to use the word skews, <laughs> but I sure. mean, how many producers? And do they rotate or I, I'm sure you've had people since you've opened still oh, sure. there, right? Of course, yeah. So there are, you know, the, the original core producers from the beginning. Um, total, there are about 110 families, maybe give or take, uh, that we work with and maybe 350 to 400 SKUs depending on the time of year. Um, and depending on how, you know, because some produce 12 wines and some produce one wine. One. Right. <laughs> sure. So, so there is a range. Um, but it's also, it's, it's a bit seasonal too because in, in many cases these are families where the production is so small and also the demand for their wine is so high that our allocations are, are nice but the wine is in the store from the new vintage for three months and then we're waiting nine months for the next vintage to arrive. So um, there is a, a bit of a rotation like that but as far as the relationships go, it's you know, they are constantly it's very, very unusual that a relationship ends. Right. That's one thing Do that's very unusual. Do these guys ever come to the States? Oh, yeah. Oh, they like come. in the last month, there's been tons I mean, of portfolio tastings, raw I mean, wine world. No, but Ali, world. more important than those. Do was, they come I, to the store? More important than those was that Alyosha Goldschmidt was here last uh, Friday, uh, one of the great, great producers in Tuscany. And uh, on the 15th of November, uh, Marjorie Gallet from uh, Domaine Le Roc des Anges. It will be here. Uh, fantastic. Uh, at the store? Oh, yeah, at the store. So people want to know store. about, you know, when you're doing events or if these sure. winemakers are coming and where, th where should they go? Morebrothers.com. That's it. M O O R E. Brothers. Brothers. Spell no, that. Spell that. Dot yeah. com and all yeah. of that. Yeah. And you have stuff coming up. Um, Brendan, I didn't ask you before, how labor intensive? Uh, the interesting thing is we're sitting in Brooklyn Cora, which I said earlier, and there's a tap room, and beyond the windows you can see all these tanks, and then there's more space where the rice is fermenting. Is this something that's very labor intensive? I mean, what are we talking about here? With wine, you pick it, crush yeah. it, you know, you pour over and you barrel it and then you party. What about? No, I'm yeah, know, right. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, I know that's the service to the winemaking process, but uh, um, um, I guess I'll tell you two things. One is the, my life before doing this and now, um, you know, uh, I can now walk into Home Depot and know exactly where I'm going because we've had to build this. Uh, that's different than, than previously. And, and also now I take a lot more ibuprofen. Um, so it's very he weighs sore. 20 pounds less. <laughs> you yes. sure? I do. I got thin quick. And, um, what is but, it? The bags yeah. of rice? Lifting yeah, them? So they're stirring? The bending over? I mean, I, so, so I haven't spent a tremendous amount of time in sake breweries in Japan, um, but I've seen enough to know that there's kind of, in my opinion, there's, there's two kinds of sake breweries in Japan. There's the highly automated ones that where, where when you come in, it, it looks a little bit like you might be going into like a microchip manufacturing plant. Everyone wears the same outfit. It's, it's like very clean. And then there's other more traditional um, sake breweries where uh, uh, like half of the brewery is outside, uh, like, like, like in the Koji room where it's really hot, everyone's got their shirt off. Um, so 
I don't know. I forgot my point. <laughs> How labor intensive it is. So, but, <laughs> but I was curious about one thing: the the, the really modern high tech yeah, one. So, so do they make good sake, or it's yeah, typically so, so they do? Out of out of like just our space and budget, we're pretty labor intensive. Like we, I don't have machines that are automatically washing everything. So we lift rice many times throughout the process. It's pretty labor intensive. So things that could be automated because of cost or space, you do yourself. Exactly. And all of that. Okay. Um, Greg and Terry, I'm curious. People always like to know what wines are interesting you now or what's exciting, any regions. I realize in the store you focus in the areas, but is there anything mm -hmm. out there that, you know, these new producers or anything from your existing guys that's caught your eye? I'll tell you what, what catches my eye um, uh, is um, that um, uh, climate change is a, is, a, is a big issue. And as a result of climate change, um, for example, Burgundy, and this goes back to what Terry was saying, three new uh, suppliers, Burgundy is growing. Um, you know, it has its, it has its uh, geographic and legal limits, but um, in areas where it was historically uh, difficult to ripen grapes. It's now possible to ripen grapes, and um, at all or later. Oh, uh, and, and, you know, in in the in the classic areas. Just speaking of Burgundy, the work in the vineyards now is 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 a, sometimes a desperate effort to restrain ripening, where. 30 years ago, it was, or 50 years ago, the desperate effort was to get ripeness, right. and you got ripeness in perhaps one vintage uh, in a decade. Now, you hear it all the time. Oh, great vintage, great vintage, the next vintage, the great vintage may have disastrously short harvests and so on, but there is this um, reality that, for example, in, in the peripheral areas that had only local interest, um, there now are wines that um, are fit for uh, for uh, a wider audience, and um, young producers who are going back and um, uh, recognizing that uh, better work with this opportunity will result in attention. And uh, the result for us is that we have uh, now really splendid, splendid burgundies that are real-world priced wines. They don't come from Vaughan Romanet or Gervais right. Chambertin, but they come, they come perhaps from the haute Coat, uh, the, 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 the hilly country above the slope. They come from places that were, are off the beaten track, not on the uh, Route des Grands Crus. And yet there are fantastic wines, authentic burgundies. And I... I even wonder, climate change is so disastrous, but, and it's a first world problem that we may lose the classic areas of uh, Burgundy in the next 40 years if trends continue, but we're, who knows, we may find a, another Grand Cru someplace where no one ever thought it could exist because so now Bur it's possible. Burgundy is so expensive and, and some of it is so hard to get you're talking about, you know, accessibility and, and new yeah, I mean, That's uh, the beauty uh, of coming into a store like yours yeah, and I mean, being you able to drink burgundies real, that are interesting and reasonable. Real interesting, wonderful burgundy for $20. It's, uh, it's, That's it's, crazy. The median price of Grand Cru's now is $500 a bottle. 
and and some of some are much higher. So it, so it's it's really wonderful that uh, that areas like the Haute Côte, the Haute Côte de Nuit, and uh, Côte Chalonnaise and, uh, and right. the Mâconnais, and and uh, the interest now in the uh, cruise in uh, Beaujolais is uh, is so uh, is wonderful. That's, that's a, what excites me. That's a good reason to go in there. Um, we have to take a quick break, which I forgot about. <laughs> and then when we come back, I still have a bunch more questions. But I want to let everyone know that Industry City is New York's hub for innovation economy, a diverse mix of over 500 businesses call Industry City home, collaborating across the 16-building campus, merging today's creative sectors like tech, content creation and design with craft making and traditional manufacturing. The industry city food scene is a rich yet approachable international experience for every palate. With five acres of outdoor space, more than 50 experiential food vendors and retailers, plus unrivaled tenant amenities, Industry City is a bustling hub where 8,000 people come to work daily and thousands stop by for a visit and I get to sit with four of the 8,000 right here, okay? All right, we're, we're coming towards the end of the show, but we have time to talk about a few things. Um, Brian, if people want to taste, buy, find Brooklyn Cora, tell me where we get this stuff. We've been very, very lucky. Um, there, tonight is Halloween, which, should I say the date, or is that not? It's okay. Uh, is that not kosher? That was surreal. That was a not kosher very, some people. very upset princess that just waved to me. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I mean, you can find our sake throughout New York City. Um, we, uh, at, at good retailers. At, at good retailers. Greg raised his hand yeah, and so, said he's so, glad so, to so, carry so, it. So, so if you're in Industry so City, Greg, you can go yeah, to more if you're in Industry City. Um, and we're lucky to have a bunch of restaurant partners in New York, in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, and now in California that are like representing us and excited about what we do. Um, if you have any questions about kind of Brooklyn Cura, come visit us here. We have a very talented team that not only knows more about sake than we do, but spends a lot of time to celebrate our sake and educate people who come here on weekends to learn more about it. So, Well, let's talk about what's going on here. So I've said it for the third time already. We're sitting at Brooklyn Core. You walk in, and there's a counter, a tasting room. There's taps, and then you see production and bottles. What's going on with the taps? So. So our job here is to make it easy, remove any obstacles that you might think are in your way from enjoying sake. We present something that's been produced here, is relatively young, varies in flavor, aromatics, etc., but is meant to be varied enough so that you can find something you enjoy. Um, we do events ranging from partnership events with the folks at Odo and Hall, which are like really Michelin star omakase uh, kaizeki restaurants, to our friends at 886 on St. Mark's who are making um, like extraordinary food approachable. We do educational events, corporate events. I mean, you name it, you can come to this so Everything's on the website. Everything's Events, on the website. Events, info, yeah. all of that. You call the company. It, it goes to us. <laughs> we pick up the phone, and we're here to like. Tell me what's tell me what's in those taps. So those taps range. So uh, you know what I describe generally is our sake in the tap room is more of a study in in fermentation profile, temperature, and yeasts. And and what we're trying to do is we're trying to tell you that sake isn't that kind of 
near distilled thing that has been presented to you in a ceramic vessel warm at the corner sushi shop. It's this rich, beautiful, aromatic, charismatic thing that can come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, like wine and craft beer. And so we have six taps that are operating all the time here. We have bottles that we're pouring by the bottle, in addition to sometimes pouring our friends and friend breweries that like are important to us as advocates and also educators and mentors. And, and like, you can experience it all here. And the only other thing I'd add is we make an unpasteurized style of sake. So, so it's meant to be enjoyed quickly and it's rich and robust. How do you drink it? Do you drink it cool, room temperature? What type of glass? So, uh, so Everybody that, looks at these that, little wooden know, boxes. I mean, We're that, done with that, That right? gets back to getting rid of the obstacles. Like I can't imagine walking to Moore Brothers wanting a bottle of sake but thinking, I don't have a tiny wooden box. Right. <laughs> it's like that's not... That's not a reasonable limitation. So we, we, we present our sake in white wine glasses. Sake is aromatic. It's beautiful to look at. You want to see the legs. You what kind of temperature? Um, we, we, serve it, to cool? we serve it like white wine temperatures, okay. relatively like, chilled. Now, there are sakes. So, I mean, in the US, sake that's served warm is, tends to be served warm because they're masking quality issues. But there are really talented brewers that make sake to be served warm. Now here, we generally make our sake to be served chilled. Um, and we, again, want to remove obstacles. So this conversation about hot and warm, or like hot, warm versus chilled, we want to kind of get rid of. Um, but in general, we serve our sake chilled. It's meant to be enjoyed like a crisp white wine or a craft beer. Um, and it's got the range to support it. That's the way to do it. Um, we got to wrap up soon. but. Terry and Greg, I wanted to ask you something. My friend Hannah here is very intimidated by wine. She's intimidated by wine lists at restaurants. She's intimidated by sommeliers. She goes into retailers and has a panic attack. So what I want you to tell me, her, and everybody is when you walk into a wine store and you know a little about what you like, how do you steer a person to walk out of there with something that you know you're confident they'll enjoy that matches their profile? Like, Greg, you brought a good point up. You have all these great Burgundy, you know, makers from, you know, regions a little outside that are reasonable. How do I get to that? I walk in, I don't know that. I may walk out and that may be, you know, my favorite wine, a house wine. So when somebody walks in, what do I do? How do I get to the best wines? Oh, uh, uh, you, you want to take that, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Go. Um, well, for us, it's easy because we have a tasting table that's open every day with four wines. So right there you can taste. And, and so right there you can taste. And, um, and what that allows us is you know, to get a sense of, of maybe what people's preferences might be. And then that informs our decisions in, in terms of where to steer them in the store. Um, but it's also, it's a wonderful forced social interaction, you know? And, and I think um, that's really what we're about in the store, which as a wine retailer seems crazy, yeah. right? But um, we're really about, um, you know, storytelling and also kind of creating a human connection between the people who produce the wines and right. people who are enjoying them because our customers tend to be 
people who, you know, the story is part of why they shop with us. Right, it's more important <clears throat> to you as a store and to the consumer to walk exactly, away to with a to create a more intimate and, and closer connection. You know, I, I think, agree with that, and I yeah. think the younger consumer is more connected to that. Do you want to add anything to that, Greg? No, I think that's, a, that's pretty fair. Yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> All, right. All right, we're going to wrap everything up. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight to Industry City, um, to our Heritage Radio Network talks. Thank you to our guests, Brian Poland, Brandon Dawn, Greg Moore, Terry Moore. Brandon and Brian are the proprietors of Brooklyn Cura, and we talked about what it is and where you can get it. Greg and Terry uh, opened their store in Industry City a few years ago, and they are a very um, special wine store in the sense that they curate um, very important winemakers. Um, so kudos to you guys. Thank you. For Thanks for having us. Thank you to everyone at Heritage Radio. And I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and thanks for joining us on The Great Nation. The Great Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.